Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Ruri, a senior science writer with Technology Networks, and on this podcast, we dissect complicated science like a game of operation. Joining me in my attempts to remove the interesting parts of scientific studies without alerting the electrified wire loop of boring jargon are my colleagues Laura Lansdowne and Molly Campbell. How are you both? I'm good. I'm good, Ruri. How are you? I'm feeling good today. Looking forward to getting to our science. And you, Molly? Yeah, um, do you know what? I was about to say howdy. Oh, wow. I'll that's stick with it. Howdy. 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 Guys. Very upbeat, yeah. Molly. Today, Laura is going to outline a discovery that is built on the work of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine in the pursuit of an anti cancer vaccine. Whereas I'm going to discuss what happens in the brain during possibly the most important and stressful time in any human's life the act of birth. And then Molly is going to talk about a condition that affects up to 10% of women of reproductive age, but remains incredibly poorly studied, and that's endometriosis. Now, we almost had a, a consistent theme there, but Laura, I, I think the vaccine one has spoiled it, I'm afraid. I've ruined the theme, haven't I? Sorry. Get me out the way. We'll talk about mine, and then you can focus on the theme for the rest of the... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, um, COVID vaccine-inspired anti-cancer vaccine. Tell us all about it. Yeah. So. Um... I found this study really interesting, so I thought I'd just highlight it. Um, and I think it's a really great example of how the COVID-19 vaccine technologies are kind of being more applied more broadly to other areas um, as we kind of transition out of the the pandemic. Well, you know, gradually, slowly but surely, fingers crossed. Um, so scientists from the University of Oxford and the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research are developing a two-dose cancer vaccine. Um, so before I kind of dive into the study and talk about that specific cancer vaccine, I thought it might be worth just running through um, briefly the different types of vaccine and how they work, just to give you kind of a, an overview. Um, so there are kind of three different types of vaccines. There's preventive, therapeutic and personalised. So preventive vaccines, um, they're given to healthy individuals. Um, the name gives it away, really, but um, these vaccines are designed to prevent viral infections that cause cancer um, or contribute to the development of the disease. Um, so they're designed to alert the immune system to a specific virus so it's able to recognise it, attack it and clear it before it causes an infection. Therapeutic vaccines are given to patients that are diagnosed with a disease, so in this case cancer, and they're designed to destroy cancer cells by boosting a patient's immune responses. Um, and they're usually designed to target a specific antigen that is um, that appears on the surface of the cell or is overexpressed by cancer cells specifically. Um, and just, just as a reminder, an antigen is a molecule that's capable of stimulating an immune response. Um, you're probably very familiar with the term antigen because of the past year antigen testing, SARS-CoV-2, and a lot of the um, COVID-19 vaccines target a specific antigen, um, the spike protein. Um, so the name's been floating around a bit. Um, and then personalised vaccines, these are these exploit um, specific mutations, so tumours can display unique targets um, on their surface and these targets um, are caused by specific mutations. So these proteins or antigens are displayed on the tumours um, and these proteins are kind of specific to the mutations. So in this study, we're talking about therapeutic vaccine, so one that's given to cancer patients. Um, and 
as we discussed earlier, it's based on the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. So this type of vaccine, Molly, I know you're quite good with vaccines, so feel free to jump in um, at any time to um, elaborate. Um, but um, there's different types of vaccine. You've probably heard mRNA vaccine, but another type is viral vector vaccines. Um, and viral vaccines, the viral vector vaccine in this study, one of them is the chimpanzee adenovirus, which was used in the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, which is where the reference comes from. Uh, there's another one, um, which is a modified vaccinia ankara or MVA vector as well that was, was studied. Um, and viral vector vaccines work by using a modified virus. So, for example, the chimpanzee adenovirus, um, which is the vector to deliver the genetic code of the target antigen. Um, and the viral vector infects cells, um, exploits the molecular machi machinery in that cell and instructs it to make copies of the antigen and then displays it on the surface of the cell. Um, and this acts as a beacon to your immune cells. So it's like, come get me. Here I am. These are the proteins that you need to look for. So this vaccine, to make it specifically target cancer cells, um, they designed it to target two tumour-specific antigens. So these antigens are only present on the surface of cancer cells and tumours. They aren't present in healthy tissues, so it means that you're obviously targeting the diseased uh, cells specifically. And they're called mage-type proteins, um, and they are found on the surface of many types of cancer cells. So in this case, the vectors were containing the coding sequences for the two mage type antigens. So the study was a preclinical study, so the team tested the cancer vaccine in mouse tumour models and they found that the vaccine boosted the levels of anti-tumour T-cells infiltrating the tumours in the tumour microenvironment um, and anti-tumour T-cells are a specific type of immune cell. Um, the importance of these immune cells just I, th I think it's important to you know highlight that. So these cells and the associate the inflammation caused by these cells in tumors is linked to a, an improved prognosis, um, and it's really critical for um, a response to a specific type of immunotherapy that can be given to patients um, called checkpoint blockade therapy. Um, unfortunately, this immunotherapy, although when it is given to patients and it works, is really great in quite a lot of patients, um, it's not that effective because they don't have enough of these anti-tumor T cells um, to, to, to have the efficacy needed to, to clear the cancer. Um, so the thinking behind this study was that perhaps if we could, if they could combine the vaccine to boost the amount of these immune cells and add it to the therapy, perhaps we could get an improved response to the therapy in some of these patients. Um, so the team tested um, the immune checkpoint therapy on its own, and then they combined it with the vaccine to see if there was an improvement. And for the animals that were given the therapy and the vaccine, so the combination therapy, there was a, a reduction in the tumour size, a greater reduction in the tumour size, and it also improved the survival of the mice. So clearly there was a benefit to to adding this vaccine um, to the therapy. So that, awesome. in a nutshell, is the study. So I don't know if you've got any questions, but I just found it really interesting. 
I mean, well, I'll leave Molly to have the nuanced questions with her extreme knowledge of vaccines, but I'm just blown away by the, you know, as you said, Laura, after a year and a half of learning more about immunology jargon than I ever cared to know uh, <laughs> <laughs> involuntarily due to COVID, um, I'm still, yeah, I, I didn't realize the, the distinction with these different um, types of vaccine and the idea of, of using one. I think I think it's so often, you know, you get a vaccine and that's you sorted and you'll be you'll be grand. But using it as a tool in, in combination with checkpoint inhibitor therapy, which mm-hmm. um, that, that that that's one that was that one that won the Nobel Prize a few years back. Is that right? Um, Jim Allison. Yeah, I believe that yeah. was the checkpoint. Yeah, checkpoint therapy. That's already revolutionary therapy. Yeah, so already. combining it. Yeah, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. cool. Cool. And the um, therapeutic cancer vaccine in the study was a two-dose vaccine, so similar to quite a lot of the COVID vaccines where you're given one dose and then you wait a specific period of time and then the booster dose is given um, as well. Um, and they're hoping, they in the paper they do note that the, a clinical trial of the vaccine combined with the therapy will commence shortly. So obviously the, the findings from this preclinical phase were, you know, positive enough for them to be considering shifting it to a clinical setting. Um, so that's really exciting. Yeah, that is that was literally going to be my one question. Oh, sorry, Molly. No, no, <laughs> it was going to be about the dosing. I wanted to know, you know, whether it was single or double dose. Um, but yeah, that's just, that's so cool. And I just it makes me wonder because we've seen these sort of really accelerated timelines with the COVID vaccines. Are we going to see a big shift, you know, across kind of both biotherapeutics and chemically synthesized drugs whereby these huge time frames that we were seeing beforehand in terms of trials approvals which I know we obviously still have to tick those boxes but I wonder if we'll see it kind of mirrored in other diseases this kind of squashed time frame so that you know patients can access these therapies a hell of a lot sooner fingers crossed yeah absolutely yeah, that's a very good point yeah Thanks for sharing, Laura. Uh, no problem. I'll let yes. you carry on with the proper theme of today's yes. podcast now. Not, not a theme <laughs> I've, I've made up on the fly during my introduction. No, 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 not at all. Um, so, yes, I am sharing what is not exactly breaking news, but is um, certainly a, an area of biology that has been poorly studied in, in recent years. And um, it's part of our the Neuroscience Of series, which we'll be releasing Um on our, our site and via our social media pages over the next few months looks in detail at how the brain is affected and affects uh, significant critical events during human life. So uh, the first article in this series is the neuroscience of birth and I think there's been a lot of research done into the bits before and after birth looking at uh, how the, the brain changes during pregnancy and, and after pregnancy. So um, I'll start by talking a bit about that because it is really interesting because we, we know, you know, it's very obvious during pregnancy, the human body changes quite a bit, but it, it's far more than just a, a growing baby bump. For example, uh, the uterus, I, d- I did not know this, it expands 500 times its pre-pregnancy size during pregnancy. You that know blows what? my mind. That's, yeah, wow. It, I, I just I'm, can't understand the logistics of that. <laughs> As someone who does not have to directly work out the logistics um, biologically, I, I won't comment on it, but um, it's pretty incredible. And the other one, of course, um, which I suppose makes sense in terms of what's required, but there's a 50% increase in the volume of plasma in a mom-to-be's bloodstream during pregnancy. 
it, you know, it, these are these are huge changes that affect pretty much every system in the human body during um, pregnancy, and it you know, it's no surprise that the brain isn't excluded from these transformative changes. So, a lot of the the shifts in the brain are around the endocrine system. So, this is hormones and other chemicals secreted by the brain uh, that induce other changes and, and reproductive changes in the body. So. Um, the hormones secreting pituitary gland uh, increases in size during pregnancy. There's levels of hormones, for example, such as um, follicle stimulating hormone that decrease because they're important for maintaining periods, which are no longer required. Whereas other ones like prolactin, estrogen, progesterone, these increase during pregnancy. And a particularly well-known hormone that increases during pregnancy is the love hormone oxytocin, which is also secreted during the formation of romantic relationships. This really rapidly increases over the course of pregnancy and it's thought in general to be due to cementing feelings of attachment between mother and baby after birth. And there's also interesting changes to the structure of the brain. So this isn't just chemical changes. Um, in particular, it was noted that the brain after birth has a reduction in gray matter. And this is the, the part of the brain that contains neurons, nerve cells, um, it was seen that this increased in several brain areas just after giving birth. So there's a reduction during pregnancy, it's thought, and then increase after birth. Um, but it's 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 unclear if this is just as a uh, restorative mechanism to to improve uh, the, the loss of brain material during pregnancy, or whether it's to accommodate some kind of other changes. But we'll get into that a little bit later. So. The, the interesting thing I found was though, that there's all this study about pregnancy, but the you know the main event that we're waiting up to, the you know a couple of days that actually nine months of pregnancy contribute towards, is very poorly studied. And the center of this article was my review of a paper by Tel Aviv University researcher Dr. Orly Dahan, which was entitled "The Birthing Brain: A Lacuna in Neuroscience." And lacuna, it turns out, is a fancy word for gap. It, it, essentially, the the key, keystone of this study was that there have been no direct biological studies of the brain during birth, which is, I, I think, pretty incredible, really, you know, for, for no, the, the... None. That's... None. None. No well, direct research has been conducted on what's happening in the, the neuropsychological states of women during either natural or even medicated birth. That, that, there's just a, a gap there. Uh, oh. Okay. I mean, I'm not being funny, but how? It, it, it is incredible to think, but I mean, in general, she said in a review that she reckons the lacuna is due to you know the difficulties in in doing like a you know an MRI study or something like that during birth. But at the same time, there's MRIs of people having sex. There's MRIs of all yeah. this other weird stuff that humans do during their life that has very much been studied. But this has just been kind of uh, looked over in, in what is such a, a critical time in life. And she also reflected that it might be because in general, we think that our research has thought in the past that changes during pregnancy are to do with being a mom rather than giving birth. And therefore you need to look at before pregnancy and after after birth and then the bit in between isn't, isn't as important. So it's created this gap in research. And what that is meant, I, I feel a bit conflicted about this, but this is the situation. What is meant is that some of the most informative studies are from 
a period of time where, uh, as a recent review put it, technical, practical and ethical reasons that restrict these sort of studies now were of less concern. So these were studies that looked at uh, hormone levels um, during birth and often in um, in animals, but in humans as well. So this is you know separate from doing any kind of brain scan studies or or psychological assessment, but there's been biometric measurements of of women during birth, which is is slightly different. And but what those those studies have identified, and these are from the you know the the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Really, there's a huge gap after that. Uh, has found that uh, oxytocin, the the love hormone I mentioned earlier, while it's risen during pregnancy, it actually spikes uh, during the moment of birth and. This is preceded by pulses during labor, but not tied to contractions, oddly, but pulses of release of oxytocin that then has that, that massive spike during birth. And it's thought, in fact, that this spike could have a number of useful functions during labor, including um, a, a feedback loop that speeds the passage of the newborn through the birth canal. This is something called the, the Ferguson reflex. And it might also be have, have a strong uh, hypnotic and pain-killing effect that, that helps with birth. Uh, but the changes to oxytocin aren't the only uh, alterations that we see during birth. So uh, the hormone norepinephrine, which kind of wakes the body up, uh, are at their highest point during birth. And it's been argued in some studies that this is the highest point reached at any point during life, not just during pregnancy. This is the, the peak of norepinephrine uh, in someone's life is is during birth. So you know, this is pretty startling stuff. And um Dan's later thesis in our, in our article was arguing that the changes we see during pregnancy and then these hormone changes I've just mentioned all contribute to creating this birthing brain, a state of birthing consciousness, as she called it, during labour. And her argument was that these changes, potentially assisted by structural alterations that I'd mentioned earlier, induce emotional changes like uh, increases in focus, uh, distortion of time, uh, pain reduction and feelings of calm and peacefulness that can make for a, a smoother and less sort of risky um, birth. And she also argued that there is uh, all these these changes are, are mediated by something called um, hypofrontality. And what this means is that there's a reduction in blood flow and neuronal activity, which could be tied to the uh, reduction in, in gray matter that I mentioned earlier in the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the seat of of higher thinking in the brain. And and what Dan argues is that this reduced um, activity in the frontal cortex essentially means that mom can focus on the important thing, which is getting the, the, the baby out and, and the birth over with. Um, and it seems as well, though, that this kind of added focus can reduce anxiety. And that theory is actually supported by studies of brain plasticity uh, well, before and after birth. So um, studies of, of rodents, for example, show that female rats that have given birth have an increased resilience to stressful events as opposed to those that haven't experienced pregnancy, which is an effect that in, in those studies persisted into old age. But there's you know, a, a, a lot of other aspects to it. So he was looking at factors, for example, that might alter this You know, if, if nature is um, trying to get the brain into a perfect state for uh, a natural safe birth. There could be environmental factors that could affect that. So, for example, a, a study from a couple of years back in 2019 suggested that medicalized interventions such as cesarean birth and use of synthetic oxytocin, the rates of these medicalized interventions decrease in delivery rooms that have softer lighting 
So it could be something as 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 minor as that could affect the birthing brain and, and make things smoother. So clearly there's a real case for increasing this research. You know, it's as we're going to find out, I think, shortly from Molly, there's a number of areas of women's health that are incredibly poorly studied for something that, as she put in a review, would affect, you know, if you're affecting and improving the lives of women that give birth and their families. I mean, that's that's pretty much everyone um, on Earth that could be benefited by uh, these kind of studies. So clearly there's this this gap and um, her final conclusion was to say there needs to be a call to action for science to, to study the, the birthing brain better, to get studies done that assess neuropsychological states during uh, birth. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope to see that in the in the near future because it certainly was a, a convincing argument to me that there is this gap and it, it needs it needs filled. That's crazy. I mean, it it makes me think because you know there are obviously interventions that certain women choose to adopt for when they're giving birth, such as hypnobirthing, and there are sort of conditions that affect women after they've given birth, such as postnatal depression. That's exactly what I was going to ask about. Yeah, that. yeah. Whether they're now that this study's being explored in more detail whether there'll be links that can be kind of mm -hmm. a quantifiable yeah. change yeah really. something mm. that can be measured as something's happening kind of in the brain physiologically that would be interesting to know during the the birth process because um, we um you know we know from you know countless um anecdotal studies that, that birth can in in certain situations be a you know a traumatic event for the mother and the idea that science is just kind of going on that like yeah that, that'll be the case without actually doing rigorous study that could measure the effects and the, the situations that can lead to that or could could help with that it seems seems crazy to me that there's not been more more research there because mm, perhaps like like you said obviously the, the levels of oxytocin go up throughout pregnancy and you said about perhaps this is to you know in terms of bonding with the the baby i wonder if you like when you're looking at postnatal depression if you were able to measure those levels whether there'd be reduced levels in people that experience those kinds of um effects after giving birth and things like that it's, it's very very mm -hmm. interesting so um one thing that also um just the fact that 50 percent increase in the volume of plasma in the bloodstream. I get puffy fingers already just naturally from swinging my arms too much when I walk. So for me, I just need to, <laughs> if I ever have a baby, I need to mentally prepare <laughs> to become <laughs> Because instantly, as soon as you said that, I thought, well, I think I have more than the average plasma in my body already. So here we go. <laughs> I'm gonna be swimming in the stuff. Now, Shall, um... Shall if, we talk um, about endometriosis? Yeah, I was going to say if we were going to do just a, a you know podcast about understudied areas of of women's health, we would probably be speaking for about ten hours straight. But yeah. uh, absolutely, Molly, endometriosis is certainly one of the most pressing issues that we've seen um, in, in in research. So I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah. So um, the reason that I picked this study to talk about today was um, I basically interviewed a gonna call her a legendary researcher in the area of endometriosis and her name is Krina Zondervan and she's a professor of reproductive and genomic epidemiology at Oxford um, amongst other roles that she does and basically her team published a study recently and, and I got to interview her about it and 
shared the article on you know TechNet and there was quite a lot of uh, responses and I think as we've kind of mentioned there are so many gaps in women's healthcare research that it felt kind of an important one to talk about and it's an example of kind of how personalised medicine might be helping us in the future with these kind of disease areas that we don't know an awful lot about and we don't really know how to treat. So we will do a little fact sheet about endometriosis. So for anybody that is unfamiliar, um, it's a condition that happens when the tissue that resembles kind of the lining of the uterus that we know shreds when a woman is menstruating or an individual is menstruating. Um, it's when this tissue occurs and grows outside of the uterus. So I was talking to the team beforehand um, before we start the podcast about an example of a person that I knew that had the tissue growing in their shoulder. Um, and so what this meant was that when it came around their menstrual cycle each month, they were having severe pain in their shoulder and they had no idea why. And it's because they had these cells growing basically on a nerve in their shoulder. Um, so unfortunately, it's a condition that can be really painful for a lot of people. It can cause things such as heavy bleeding, um, ovarian cysts, fatigue, lots of sort of other issues that can extend from having an, a diagnosis of endometriosis and what I found particularly shocking was the fact that the average wait for a diagnosis is between eight to ten years so what it, yeah it's a really long time and I think especially if you consider the fact that I, I don't speak for all women but for many women coming to terms with and familiarizing yourself with your kind of menstrual health is something that can come a little bit later in life when you're sort of in your early 20s maybe uh, late teens and that might be when you're only just starting to figure out that something's not quite right so women could be living with this condition for even years sort of previous to getting a diagnosis um, and it's estimated to affect about one in ten people but again experts believe that this that actual statistic is probably a lot higher because of the amount of sort of misdiagnoses that are given um, and kind of underreporting of symptoms. So yeah, it's it's an area of research where unfortunately our understanding is somewhat limited and as a result treatment options are quite limited. They include things such as um, surgery, birth control, which is unfavourable for a lot of people because, you know, if you don't want to be taking birth control you, you don't really want to have to take it from medicinal purpose, I guess. Are these hormonal birth controls? Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. So I know mm-hmm. that's, that's obviously something that a lot of people would rather avoid. So, yeah, it's, it's an area where there is um, sort of a lot of unmet needs, let's say, which is probably not an accurate representation. There's a lot of unmet need. But I spoke to Zondervan and basically she let me know that there is, a growing understanding that whilst we don't know all too much about what is causing endometriosis that there are sort of a mixture of environmental so lifestyle factors but also genetic influences so the heritable nature of the disease is now estimated to be at 50 percent and during the past few years since we've kind of had this explosion in genomics research we're able to obviously read the genetic code and we're able to identify specific variants in the genetic code that may increase or decrease our susceptibility to certain conditions 
An example of how we study this is through a GWAS study, which stands for Genome-Wide Association Study. Now, in a nutshell, what a GWAS does is looks at a population and looks for specific genetic variants that are almost clustered, so associated with certain people within that population. And for example, those people may suffer from a particular disease. Therefore, it implies it's not causal. So just to emphasize that, it doesn't mean that if you have a genetic variant, you will have this disease, but it just helps scientists and clinicians to get a little bit more of an understanding of what factors might contribute to the development of a disease. So this is what Zondervan has done in her latest study. Um, as I said before, she's very big in this research area. So this is just the example of the latest work she's published, but there have been lots of GUS studies conducted previously. But in this news today, what her team did was they looked at DNA samples that were collected from 32 families in which at least three women in the family had been diagnosed with endometriosis. So that I think just kind of emphasises the fact that there is this heritable nature to it if there are families where, you know, three women have been diagnosed. And what they did is they looked for specific variants within these samples and they identified a variant in a gene that is known as NPSR1 and what this gene is is it's actually encoding a protein which is a receptor for a neuropeptide which is called neuropeptide S. So the name of NPSR1 if we're going to extend it is neuropeptide S receptor 1 and um, it, it's located a lot in the brain and it's been linked to all sorts of other inflammatory conditions such as asthma, uh, things like IBD, so inflammatory bowel disease. So it has been studied and what they found was that when they extended this genetic analysis um, into monkey models essentially, so non-human primate models, which can also interestingly develop spontaneous endometriosis, so that's naturally occurring endometriosis. Um, when they looked at the DNA samples from over 850 of these animals, they found that this, this pattern of the mutation in this gene NPSR1 was replicated so what that implies is it's kind of adding more strength to the evidence because you're seeing this mutation in humans and you're also seeing it in the animal models. So what they decided to do was obviously if we can identify a mutation in a, a, a protein, a lot of drug targets are proteins. So they wanted to see whether it was possible to inhibit the protein that was mutated and they used what is called a tool compound now, this is just a molecule that is known to inhibit a specific protein, in this case, a receptor. Doesn't mean it can be applied therapeutically. It's just kind of used as an example of, yes, you can shut this protein down or you can modify this protein's effect by using this inhibitor. So it's called SHA6AR. And what they found was that this inhibitor was able to actively inhibit the mutated protein. And so... When I spoke to the researchers, they emphasised that this is kind of really exciting work because it's uncovering new targets using genetic analyses for drugs that might be actually more specific for individuals with endometriosis rather than kind of generalising the population, generalising how each, each individual's disease presents and considering the individual. Again, as I mentioned previously, this is kind of emphasising the value of moving towards that personalised medicine approach. So 
this was kind of a, a proof of principles today about this mutation. So the plans are from the research team to extend the work um, study in larger populations and also look to see what therapeutics might already exist or what therapeutics we might be on our way to uncovering that target this specific receptor and the subsequent pathways and studying a little bit more about how they are implicated in the symptoms that we see in women with endometriosis. So that in a nutshell is the major gap in women's research that is endometriosis identification of a potentially novel drug target and an example of how we can use genetic data to identify personal targets for personalised medicine. I think it's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. That's fantastic research. I was thinking, um, obviously you said about the just the, such a long time from you know, obviously onset of symptoms to getting a clinical diagnosis, but when you were talking about the individual with pain in, in their shoulder, you can kind of appreciate that perhaps because the symptoms are so broad and it can affect so many people so differently that's probably one of the challenges in terms of diagnosing it because like probably you, you wouldn't think that shoulder pain would be caused by endometriosis would you yeah. initially yeah. like it's not a link that you would instantly make so um yeah just fascinating really yeah, yeah. but yeah uh, you know any condition where people are waiting on average a decade to get a diagnosis, you know, is being failed by by modern medicine, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, and with the, as you said, the the epidemiology of of this condition, you know, it's just affecting far too many people to be ignored for any longer. So thanks for um, for sharing that research, Molly. It's, it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Fab. Well, I guess the theme of the podcast may have, in fact, just been real important research needs to get done. Because <laughs> cancer vaccine definitely in there too. So how about we just retrospectively, yeah, change it to that. Sounds uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Say it louder for the people in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Laura and Molly, for joining me today. And uh, thank you, of course, as always, to our listeners. Um, please, wherever you've been listening to Opinionated Science, please do like and share our podcast. And of course, comment on it and give us your opinions. Don't keep them to yourselves. But until next week's podcast, that's all from me. Bye for now. <laughs>